break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 27th of July, 2021. Very happy to be back with you here on the show, as we always are. Plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about an interesting turn in the political situation in Cote d'Ivoire. That's the Ivory Coast. We're going to be talking about so-called trickle-down economics and how it just doesn't work. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we're going to start with Big Pharma's attempt at a massive tax dodge. Major pharmaceutical companies in the United States and Europe are waging a lobbying war in the United States and Europe, of course, against the G7 plan driven by the United States to enact a global minimum tax of 15 percent, a plan 130 countries have now signed on to. And this is all according to a report in The Wall Street Journal this morning. The plan That is the 15% minimum tax plan seeks to address the issue that capital is increasingly globalized and is taking advantage of the variations of tax regimes around the world to dodge taxes in multiple countries by adopting various crafty legal structures. Big Pharma is entering the fray majorly because, as Richard Collier, who teaches international tax law at Oxford and advised on the global tax framework, told the journal today, quote, Pharma has done a lot of tax planning and has put a lot of intangibles into tax havens, end quote. And also the journal details that, quote, pharmaceutical companies are particularly vulnerable to proposed tax changes because they have global operations that sell products around the world. And like big tech companies currently pay taxes where operations are based or where they have parked key intellectual property. Like Silicon Valley, many drug companies have complex structures that favor lower tax countries, end quote. The proposal has, the general reports, quote, set up a fight in Congress and in Europe in private industry meetings and discussions with congressional staffers. Drug company executives and lobbyists are seeking to use the industry's pandemic role as leverage, end quote. That is, they're trying to say, well, hey, we saved the world with these vaccines, so you should not tax us. The journal further notes that, quote, U.S. companies Johnson & Johnson and Pfizer Incorporated have taken a lead role in some of the discussions people involved say. It's really no wonder that these companies are freaking out because they are paying outrageously low taxes right now. The current corporate tax rate is 21%. According to a journal analysis of effective tax rates, over the last decade, Pfizer had a 5.8% tax rate. That's 5.8, the number 5, not 58. Johnson & Johnson had an effective tax rate of 10.8% last year and 12.7% in 2019. Overall, the journal analysis detailed that, quote, over the past decade, the world's 20 largest pharmaceutical companies reported a global effective tax rate of about 17%, end quote. And again, the corporate tax rate in the U.S. is 21%. And it's not like these companies are broke either. 
In fact, Pfizer made roughly $9.6 billion in profit in 2020, Johnson & Johnson, $14 billion. Big Pharma has been trotting out its old, tired explanation for why it must have low taxes and super high prices, and that is that it cost them a lot of money to research and develop new drugs. Now, to be fair to them, that process isn't exactly cheap, but it's really just a sham excuse. One easy way to see that is to note the results of a new House Oversight Committee report that details how Big Pharma, in the four years between 2016 and 2020, spent $56 billion more in share buybacks than on research and development. Now, you'd think if R&D was so important that it would be a bigger expense than just shoveling cash to rich Wall Street investors. The reality is, Big Pharma is just lying about the issue of research and development to cover up for their own profiteering. How successful this push will be is unclear. While the idea of a global minimum tax has many advocates, it also has many detractors, and not just in the corporate world, but in countries that have structured their entire economic strategy on being tax havens, including, notably, Ireland. It also isn't 100% clear how exactly the nuts and bolts of the thing would work anyway. But either way, this lobbying push by Big Pharma is just another window into the massive corporate greed that is a feature, not a bug, of capitalism. Well, while we're on the subject of taxes, it seems worth considering some of the underlying theories of these low tax rates that are out there promoting these big tax cuts. It's known to many of us as quote-unquote trickle-down economics. The thought behind it is that if you cut taxes for corporations, they will invest in their businesses and that will create more economic growth and thus more jobs and higher wages for workers. It's an old theory, but it became common sense just about in the United States because of Ronald Reagan's low-tax pro-corporate crusade that ended up putting him in the White House. Well, a new study from the London School of Economics looked at 18 OECD countries, those are basically the so-called developed nations, over the last five decades to look at the effect of tax cuts for the wealthy on income inequality, unemployment, and economic growth. In short, they found that while income inequality increases, unemployment and economic growth remain unchanged. So in other words, there is no positive economic effect for tax cuts for the super rich. They just get wealthier at the expense of everyone else. One thing they note about the increase in income equality is that it increases over time. They measured out to five years after each reform, noting that as the years go by, inequality becomes more pronounced, which of course makes sense. As the tax cuts settle in, the amount of income each rich person is making increases and that just builds on itself. And of course, one interesting fact that the paper doesn't directly address, but which is certainly relevant here, is that lower tax revenues imply a shortchanging of social programs that reduce income inequality so that there's a relationship in the growth of inequality that is the rich getting richer, while everyone who's not rich struggles even more to make up any ground because they're getting less assistance. As Marx famously said, the accumulation of wealth at one pole is the accumulation of misery at the other. As it concerns unemployment, the report notes that tax cuts for the rich result in a small, quote-unquote, flash-in-the-pan effect in terms of unemployment decreases. There are slight downward ticks in unemployment immediately after the tax cut, but then that effect actually peters out over time. And they also note that they didn't even find the quote-unquote flash-in-the-pan effect to be statistically significant. So more or less, it doesn't actually represent much overall change. But what the broader finding implies is that some random companies are adding workers, but that this is essentially a unique phenomenon firm by firm, and that economy-wide, the tax cut isn't spurring the expansion of the workforce. As it concerns GDP, the paper bluntly notes, quote, 
The effect size of major tax cuts for the rich on real GDP per capita is close to zero and statistically insignificant, end quote. Now, of course, for quite some time, the issue of trickle-down economics has been panned. In fact, in the 1980 Republican primary, George H.W. Bush famously referred to Reagan's economic theories as, quote-unquote, voodoo economics. Nevertheless, it's good to have even more statistical refutation of the central tenet of the capitalist class. The wealth doesn't trickle down to anywhere when these tax cuts happen, except the wallets of the (laughs) ultra-rich. A fairly surprising turn in Côte d'Ivoire, known in English as the Ivory Coast, former President Laurent Gbagbo and the current President Alassane Ouattara, who overthrew Gbagbo in a coup just about 10 years ago, are set to meet and discuss the situation overall in the country. Over 3,000 people were killed in fighting around that coup, and the meeting between the two has raised hopes from many observers that it could help improve the overall political climate, which is still tense following disputed elections last year that brought Ouattara back to power. Those elections last October caused protests in working class districts of the capital and other parts of the country after Bagbo was banned from the election and further because Watara was violating the two term limit that is set in the country's constitution. Roughly 15 people were killed in that unrest. The differences between the two forces, Watara and Bagbo, that is, are deeply rooted in the legacy of colonialism and the reality of neocolonialism. Bagbo, who became president in the early 2000s, wanted to change the orientation of the country away from being just a neo-colony of France. He began to open up contracting more widely uh, to other companies in other Western countries on the African continent and also began to pursue a relationship with China, which was right at the beginning of China's large-scale re-engagement on the continent and thus was more notable than that might sound today. In 2010, Wittar disputed the election that was won by Bagbo, quickly gained the support of Western nations. He was a former IMF official, had long ties to these international institutions of imperialism. The French military lent their support to a drive-by Wittara and rebel armed forces on the capital to overthrow Bagbo. And that campaign, by the way, that drive to the capital, at the time, Human Rights Watch said that Wittara and his rebels, quote, summarily executed and raped perceived Bagbo supporters in their homes as they worked in the fields, as they fled, or as they tried to hide in the bush, end quote. Nonetheless, these atrocities were never mentioned in Western media, which in fact declared Bagbo to be the massive human rights abuser. And on top of that, by the way, when Wittara showed up, he was praised by Hillary Clinton, who said this was a great moment in time. But after the coup, Bagbo was sent to the ICC for perpetrating crimes against humanity. However, Bagbo was acquitted of these charges in both the original trial and an appeal process in the ICC and was able to return to the country triumphant, at least in that sense. Bagbo's policies were seen by many in the country as more populous, in addition to less neocolonial, which had earned him important support in poorer parts of the population. And Watara, president since the coup, hasn't really improved the conditions for that subset of people either. Currently, 46.3% of the population in Côte d'Ivoire lives in poverty, and 21.6% suffer from chronic acute malnutrition, while social services remain quite limited. Wattar has also maintained his country very closely in the orbit of the West, hence the muted response to his various human rights violations and dodgy elections. That sort of thing only matters when the West doesn't like you, of course. Either way, while both sides are definitely playing down expectations in a big way, especially Bogbo's side, it could be a good sign for the politics of the Ivory Coast, ratcheting down tensions and perhaps opening the door for more inclusive politics. 
That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.